Okay, um, this is from Exodus chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, he refuses to let the people go. So or go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile and meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile shall sink, and the Nile will sink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hands over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as, as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and shook the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile sank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to him, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, so that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with this and you would have been cut off from the earth. Thanks, Grace. Well, hey, y'all. My name is John Trapp. So good to have y'all here. Um, I'm the campus minister for RUF here at the University of Texas, and we're just glad to have you here. At RUF, we really believe that, um, that Christianity is, when, when, it, when you boil down to what it is, it's, uh, it's one beggar telling another beggar where they found bread. In other words, Christianity isn't um, about being really good and showing um, how great you are and how deserving you are of God's grace. Instead, we believe that Jesus, the bread of life, has come to people who do not deserve it, to beggars like me, like all of us, and that he has offered us a seat at his table. And so at RUF, this is a room full of beggars, and we're telling other beggars where we have found the bread of life. And tonight, tonight's a fun topic. We're talking about plagues, you guys. How fun is that, right? Yikes. Okay. Um, so plagues can, can like contain your excitement. Plagues, I know, are maybe a little bit weird. Um, and the topic can be painful, but not all pain is bad. And plagues do something. We, we see it in this passage here. Plagues shake us and they show us what is true. Plagues reveal something to us, and they make an appeal to change. Um, I experienced this firsthand when I was in college. So my senior year, at, uh, I, I just graduated actually from Vanderbilt, and I was still living in our off-campus house 
at, uh, in Nashville, um, waiting to go to my first job that was starting later in August. And uh, I'll, just, I'll just be honest with you guys. The house that I lived in um, and the way that we kind of kept up with the house was not good. Like, my other seven roommates and I, we were very messy. We didn't really care that much about dishes. Um, there was a, a time someone lost a bike and they didn't know where it was. It turned out it was under their laundry. I mean, this was the kind of house that we lived in, okay? So, um, we, did, we thought it was fine, though. No big deal, right? Until um, <laughs> one day, that summer day, um, we're all like laying around the living room playing video games and not doing much of anything. And our friend Clark walks in. He's like, got all these like bites on my back. We're like, show us. What do you, what do you mean? He like, turns around, lifts up his shirt, and he's got like these bug bites like all over his back. And we're like, where were you just now? He's like, I was in my bed. We're like, oh no, we have bed bugs. And we had them bad. And so now, like, every time we go to sleep at night, we're getting, like, bit all over because they only have to come out in the dark and they only like to bite your really warm places and it feels like these horrible mosquito bites all over your body. So, we finally had, like, okay, first, like, house meeting. We got to do this and, like, talk about this issue of the bed bugs in our house. And we're all, like, gathering to meet and talk about this and we're like, where's Peter? Like, no one could find our friend Peter. And uh, we're calling out for him, and we go up into one of the bedrooms, and Peter is, like, lying in bed, eating a snack, watching a movie. Like, he's lying in one of the bed bug beds, and we're like, Peter, what are you doing? He's like, dude, I've made my peace with the bed bugs. <laughs> we're just like, what? Like, no, you don't make peace with the bed bugs. That is not a good plan. And that's the thing with plague. He's like, Plagues are not something that you make peace with. A plague reveals a problem. It revealed a problem to us in our house that we needed to do some like deep cleaning, right? And it also is an appeal to change. It reveals a problem and it's an appeal to change. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. What plagues reveal to us, the appeal that they make to us, and then so what? So let me pray for us and we'll dive into this passage. Lord, um, I thank you that you are a God who meets us where we are. And that you uh, welcome us into life with you, not because of what we have done, but because of what you've done for us. And I pray that we would see that even now as we study. Would you um, bless us and help us? And we pray that your spirit would do the work. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so first, what do plagues reveal to us? So plagues one through nine are telling a story. And we're going to kind of do like big picture plagues here. So we're covering like four chapters of Exodus, okay? Um, but plagues one through nine are telling a story. And like, if God just wanted to get Israel, spoiler alert, Israel's like going to get freed from Egypt. If all God was trying to do is get them freed, then he could have just gone to the 10th plague, the one that he knew was going to finally do the trick. But instead he takes us through this story of Exodus, of the first nine plagues in Exodus. And what it's showing us, it's telling us a story of, of stubbornness. It's telling us a story of where, um, where our, our bad gods lead us. Um, it reminds me a little bit of the story of Green Eggs and Ham. Um, you know, y'all know that book. I'm, I read like children's literature all the time. We have five kids at our house. And uh, I'm pretty sure my kids only want to read Green Eggs and Ham all the time because it's super long and it like delays bedtime for a little while. 
But we've been reading Green Eggs and Ham a lot at the Trap House. And, you know, Sam I Am, if Sam I Am is like immediately convinced by his unnamed friend, by the way, the guy has no name. But if Sam, if Sam I Am is, um, convinces his unnamed friend to try eggs, uh, immediately it's like a short book. And there's not much story to his persistence. And the same is true with Pharaoh, that God is actually telling a story here about what is actually going on and what's in Pharaoh's heart. And so in the spirit of um, Green Eggs and Ham, I thought I would go ahead and summarize the four chapters that we're looking at um, with this little thing I wrote for you guys. Here we go. Will you let my people go? Heed my warning, King Pharaoh. I would not, could not for clean water or to get that frog off of my daughter. Not for the gnats, not for the flies, not even if my livestock dies. Number five. Anyway, not for boils, hail, or locusts on my land. And not if it's so dark, I can't see my hand. I will not heed your warning, Mo. I will not let your people go. So that's the plague. All right. Why is it? Thank you. I spent way too much time writing that, but it was fun. And it for you. Okay, great. Um, what is this story telling? It's showing, this is really interesting. It's actually showing a battle of the gods. So there's this Old Testament um, scholar named John Curid, and he makes the observation that the plagues are really showing us whose God is powerful, Egypt's gods or Israel's one God. And you see, Egypt, the plagues are targeted at the supposed divine authority that Egypt serves. So, for instance, Hopi is the god, the god of the Nile, okay? The first plague hits the Nile. The second plague is, um, befalls these frogs. Well, in Egypt, they had a god called Hecate, who was the fertility god and looked like a frog. And you can kind of go through, like, it's pretty interesting, but you can go through a lot of these and see, like, this is kind of a direct attack on these Things like the sun god, Ray, or these sacred animals, these bulls. There's all these things that are happening that seem to be an attack on the gods. And um, what plagues do is that they expose false gods as being weak. And Tim Keller observes that, interestingly, most of these plagues actually come about like pretty naturally. It's interesting. Like one, one clearly very miraculous thing happens. The Nile is turned to blood, and then kind of all hell breaks loose. But if you think about what would happen when the Nile is smitten by Moses here, well, everything living in it, like frogs, would run out of there and get the heck out. And that's the second plague. And it says at the end of um, the second plague in Exodus, I think, 8, that the Egyptians gathered all these dead frog carcasses and piled them up. Well, what's going to happen after you have a big pile of frog carcasses? Like naturally what happens next is you're going to get flies and gnats. And those are the next two things. And what happens when you have a big bug infestation? Well, like stuff starts to get sick and these livestock all start to die. And when these big animals are starting to die, what happens next? Well, like people are going to start getting like things on their skin and boils. And there's all of these things. It's like one natural thing leads to another. There's this big hailstorm that comes in and what happens a lot of times after a big wind system changes you get like sometimes you get like bugs a different bug migration all these like grasshoppers and locusts show up and what i want you to see is that god he didn't have to use natural means to show what's going on to to show the weakness of the egyptian gods 
But what he's doing is he's showing us where does serving these gods lead to you? What it does is it naturally leads to destruction. So much so that the ninth plague, um, where it describes utter darkness falling on Egypt for several days, it's, it's this image of like a return to Genesis 1-2. The second verse of the Bible says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So by the, by the ninth plague, the image that we're given is that like there has been an uncreation. That now the world has been sent back into chaos and darkness because this is what this is where these weak gods lead you. And so what God is showing is that that's where that's where the things that we worship naturally take us. And yet we look to false gods, too, because we think they will make us powerful or happy, just just like. Egypt served Hopi or Hecate or Ray, or there are many other gods. We do the same thing. We just have different gods. Uh, I got some of this from my, my friend Crawford. He says, we have the recruiter god. He says, the recruiter god has the head of a snake, wears business attire. He requires perfection from you. You must bow at his altar to get exactly what you want and to give him what he wants. We have the professor god. With an owl head, maybe a dad body because he's too busy to go work out in the gym, doesn't have time. He's the god of intellectual prowess. We have the parent god with a mom head, octopus body, tentacles everywhere. He's probably wearing yoga pants. Um, she keeps her arms in all different parts of your business, ready to spew an ink of guilt and shame on you for disappointing them. We have the romance god with a Zac Efron head and a Zac Efron body. It's basically just Zac Efron. Um, but like, we look to them to satisfy us, to fulfill all that we're romantically looking for. But the reality is the recruiter god will crush you when you can't give it perfection. The professor god will disappoint you when, you, when they don't have all the answers to your questions. The parental approval of God, God will smother you. The romance God will leave you disappointed. Even if you get married, they cannot fulfill you all the way. See, the God that you give your life to, it will disappoint you, it will hurt you, and it will ultimately lead to your destruction. And um, it, it, remind, it reminds me of the story um, I read pretty sure this happened in Florida. No offense if you're from Florida, but like, I feel like most of these stories happen sometimes around there. Anyway, um, there was this lady who, um, she had a pet python, like a big pet pet python. And she, uh, she really loved this python and, uh, you know, pythons are cold blooded. So they like to be around warmth. So she just began letting it sleep in her bed with her. Um, I know, right? Awesome. So anyway, sorry if I give you nightmares. Um, so she's going along like this for years, letting this python sleep in her bed. And then like her python just kind of like stops eating and she's getting worried about it. And uh, so she takes the python to the vet and the vet looks at the snake and he's like, snake's fine. Like, I don't really, I don't really know why it's not eating. And he's like, do you have any um, small pets in your house that you, that you, um, that you let roam around? She's like, no. He's like, well, tell me about the cage situation. Like, She's like, well, um, I just kind of let it go free and it sleeps in my bed with me. He's like, 
Okay. Um, well, you should know that, like, before pythons have a really big meal, they, like, fast for a while. And uh, it's trying to eat you. <laughs> so you might want to get a new cage, okay? <laughs> um, here's the thing. I know, right? Wow. I hope that's an urban legend, but I think it's true. Um, so the thing, what the image of that is, though, is that the thing that we... The thing that we love can actually be, like, the, the thing that we're trusting can be what destroys you. And that's what's happening here to Egypt. Is they're seeing, like, these gods that they thought would give them prosperity and safety or fertility. I mean, it's kind of ironic. Like, the frog god is the fertility god. And so the second, um, the second plague is like, hey, you want... You want fertile frogs? Here you go. You know, like frogs everywhere. And this is, this is what it looks like for God to enact his judgment, which the Bible does tell us he will do. But the way that he does it is he, he gives us over to the things that we actually want and desire. That's how he enacts his judgment. So what Paul says in Romans 1, that, that God gives us over to the things that we think are good for us, that we desire, that actually are our folly. Um, this is kind of my own personal riff off of a C.S. Lewis um, thought in one of his books. But essentially what I'm saying is heaven is man saying to God, thy will be done. And hell, God's judgment, it looks like God saying to man, thy will be done. Heaven is man saying to God, thy will be done. And hell, our hell is God saying to man, okay, your will, that's what you want. You got it. Thy will be done. And what the plagues are for are to shake us from the hopelessness of this. Of seeking out our own salvation or the things that we think will care for us. Um, they're meant to break us from this. See, what plagues do is it's, it, it can actually be an act of God's mercy. Because here's the deal. What may feel like hell in your life right now even, what may feel like hell may actually be a hurt from heaven. Because heaven wants you to change and hell hopes that you never do. And God loves you too much to let anything else be your hope. So what plagues do is they make an appeal to us. First off, they make an appeal to us in two ways. First off, and I want to, I want to hit on this briefly, but I think it's important. They make an appeal to us to hope, to have hope. Because you've got to see that Israel has been plagued by Egypt for four, over 400 years. Egypt has been plaguing Israel and now the plaguers are becoming plagued. And part of the hope of the gospel, part of the hope that there is a good and righteous God, is that he is going to do something about all the wrong things that have happened to you. He's going to do something about all the wrong things in this world. That the things that plague us will find themselves plagued. In other words, that loneliness 
will find itself to be alone. Or barrenness will find itself to be barren. That poverty will find that it has it has nothing. That bullies will be overpowered and death will die. That's the hope. That the plaguers will be plagued. But this also means, before you start thinking about like the people who've plagued you and how you can't wait to see them be plagued by God. It's also an appeal to repentance. Plague, plagues are an appeal to repentance because... While God is just, I want you to see that he's also very patient with people who are doing the plaguing. He gives Pharaoh ten chances to repent. He is patient. And, in, and he's even like, he even goes easy on Pharaoh sometimes. Like Before he sends the hailstones in Exodus 9.19, he says, Now therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field. Get it into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. He's telling them, look, this is coming. So get all of your friends and all the Egyptians and tell them to take shelter. See, God wants... And not only that, not only is he patient with them, but he wants the world to know who he is. Look at verse 16. But for this purpose, Pharaoh, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. What plagues do is they bear witness of the God of the earth to the earth of who he is. And here we are today looking at once more at his word. And we see that it's not just Israel's... That, it's not just for Israel's salvation, that the plagues are for the nation's salvation. They're an invitation to turn to the one true God who can save and away from the ones who can't. So maybe your question is now, okay, so plagues are a call to repentance, but why should I trust him? This God who sends plagues to shake us, why should I trust him? It makes me think of that question makes me think of this story about a man named Barry Marshall. He was a doctor. Uh, he was living in Australia. And he um, noticed many, many of his patients back then were coming into his office suffering from ulcers. And at the time, like the common like, belief was that ulcers were just a cause of stress or anxiety. And he... Uh, he starts doing research on this and he becomes convinced that ulcers are actually caused by this bacteria that he keeps finding as he does biopsies of ulcers and checks them out called Helicobacter pylori. And so the problem, though, was as he studies it, and he becomes more and more convinced that this is it, this is clearly true, that these ulcers are caused by Helicobacter pylori. And not only that, he then discovers this, that not only are they causing ulcers, they are also causing stomach cancer. Which at the time was one of the most deadly cancers. And he realizes that if, if, this, is, if this bacteria is causing ulcers and causing cancer, then there's a very easy remedy to this. If it's a bacteria, the remedy is, um, it's in my notes. The remedy, <laughs> the remedy is, um, you guys know what do you take? Antibiotics. Wow. Oh my gosh. It's easy, right? Gee willikers. Okay. 
Uh, the answer is antibiotics. There it is right there in my notes. But here's the problem. Helico, Helicobacter pylori doesn't affect lab rats. It only affects primates. And he goes, he's like telling the medical community, I know what causes stomach cancer, and nobody believed him. And so, Barry Marshall took matters into his own hands. He takes a swab from one of his ill patients who has Helicobacter pylori in their ulcer. He takes the swab, he puts it in a broth, mixes it, and drinks it. And after a couple of days, he develops gastritis, which is a precursor to an ulcer. He starts vomiting. His breath begins to stink. He feels sick and exhausted. He biopsies his gut. Sure enough, there's the virus. There's the problem. And he gives himself the antidote, and he's cured. And today in the Western world, stomach cancer has been completely wiped out. He, win he wins the Nobel Prize in 2005 for his medical discovery. Now, I want you to think about... When you, let's say that you are somebody who has this bacteria in their body and you go to the, your doctor and it's Barry Marshall and he sits you down and he says, I know what you need. You need to take antibiotics. I don't think your reaction would be like, you know, I'm not really sure that he's got enough skin in the game here. Like, how can I really trust this guy? Does he really know what he's talking about? Of course you would trust him. Why? Because he took the plague on before you did. That's why you would trust him. And this is why, this is why Christianity is so compelling. Because we believe that in order to take away... Everything that plagues this world, that Jesus ultimately becomes plagued himself in order to save people like me who plague the world. Jesus himself enters into a plagued world, much like Egypt, where young boys are being killed by an evil king, except this time it's Herod instead of Pharaoh. Jesus becomes a man of sorrows. He takes on the plague of our sin. He drinks the broth, but this time it's the broth of God's wrath. And he drinks it on the cross. And do you know how, what happens on the cross? It's once more, it's an echo of Exodus. It's a return to chaos. The God of the universe is on the cross and darkness descends for three hours. It says all the gospels note this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John doesn't, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke all note that there's darkness from noon to 3 p.m. Jesus goes into the darkness of the cross. It's the same kind of chaotic darkness of Genesis 1-2. It's the same kind of darkness on the ninth plague. Jesus goes into the plague to save you. So he can have you. Because he loves you. Not because of what you've done for him. He loves to rescue beggars and bring them into his joy. He loves to take people who deserve water turned to blood. And instead, he gives up his own blood to save them. That is King Jesus. He is the one who would welcome you to come and worship him. Did you see, did you see what, um, what Moses tells Pharaoh? He says, look at, uh, it's verse 16. Let my people go. And, and the, um, 
like the, if you watch like the Charlton Heston or Prince of Egypt like movies or whatever, that's usually where it stops. Let my people go. But that's not what Moses' anthem is. Moses' anthem is, let my people go so that they may serve me in the wilderness. This is God's message. You see, here's the thing. All of us are going to worship something. But God knows that there is only one who you can worship. And when you fail him, he doesn't punish you. See, all of these other gods that promise salvation end in their destruction. And God knows that if, if you bow your knee to the God of fill in the blank, beauty or success or romance or whatever, that that God will ultimately lead to your doom. And when you fail it, it will make you feel terrible. But Jesus is the God-man who enters into history and he takes on the plague for people who fail. See, he takes the punishment when we fail. All other gods will punish you when they fail, but when we fail Jesus, he has already taken the punishment for us. That is why you have been freed to worship him and to follow him. So what? couple things real quick my main thing would just be look repent and trust the one who was plagued for you turn from your false idols that would seek your destruction secondly think about if jesus has gone into the if you're a christian here tonight if jesus has gone into the plague for you what we are called to do is to go into the plague for others There are people in our world, there are people in your fraternity and sorority houses, there are people in your dorm rooms, there are people in your classes who are plagued on all kinds of sides, whether it's with loneliness or a broken home or regret or fear. We get to go into the plague for them, just like Jesus did, because we are the body of Christ. See, Jesus hasn't stopped going into the plague for people. Now he sends you to do that. If you aren't a Christian here tonight, thank you for being here. Thank you for considering the truth. Is, like, is this God real? I would encourage you to examine this carefully. Because if it's true, if it's true, then there is everlasting joy held out to you. By a God who's willing to go into the plague to rescue you out of love. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that you are the God who uh, enters into the plague for the people that you love. And we pray that that would form us into the kind of people who are willing and ready to go and be with people who are hurting, who are sad. To go be with people who are marginalized to be a voice for those who are defenseless, to be the kind of people who love sacrificially because you have done that for us. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.